Uh, Mike Flynn was a, he's, he's an out of the box, I guess I'd describe him this way, he's, he's both an out of the box thinker and he's an in the box thinker. It's Aspen Ideas To Go, I'm Trisha Johnson. Retired Admiral Mike Mullen is a former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. In that role, he worked with General Mike Flynn, President-elect Trump's pick for National Security Advisor. On today's show, Mullen shares more about Flynn and goes over the foreign policy challenges that face Trump when he enters office. Aspen Ideas To Go is a weekly podcast that features compelling talks presented by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. President-elect Donald Trump has no national security experience. If selected as national security advisor, General Mike Flynn would be Trump's primary liaison with the State Department, the Pentagon, and other intelligence agencies. Flynn would be his guide on issues such as Russia, China, and Syria. Admiral Mike Mullen. Uh, the challenges uh, that, that uh, this new administration will see will come from every direction, and the national security advisor is the quote-unquote honest broker. Uh, in inside the national security system, and I, uh, I, you know, I'm hopeful that that Mike will be able to tee that, you know, tee the issues up for the president, uh, the president, president-elect, and and soon to be President Trump. Uh, and I just I know that business pretty well. They will come in droves. Mullen was the featured speaker at the Aspen Institute's Washington Ideas Roundtable series held Monday, November 21st. In this episode, you'll hear other experts in the field and journalists asking Mullen questions, including career diplomat John Negroponte, New York Times national security correspondent Eric Schmidt, Evelyn Farkas of the Atlantic Council, and many others. Students from Washington Latin Charter School also ask questions. Aspen Institute President Walter Isaacson opens the conversation with a question for Mullen. How worried are you about Russia having a, a clause into this uh, to us now, from cyber to Mike Flynn, <laughs> to president to President-elect Trump. Uh, I wasn't going to go there. No. I was going to. Um, I've said actually for the last uh, couple of years uh, have cited uh, President Putin as uh, I think somebody that's at the top of my list that we've got to pay a lot of attention to. Um, I don't think he has changed his stripes over the course of his career. Uh, I think uh, he, Russia gets a vote at the UN. Russia, uh, it was inevitable as far as I was concerned that Russia was going to get involved one way or the other in Syria. Um, and, uh, and, and so I think he, as Russia has quote-unquote reemerged, even with the internal challenges that Russia has, uh, I think he is somebody that we need to have a very uh, very, very much an engaged relationship with. That doesn't mean make him a partner. Uh, you and I have talked before. I think we've got, my, my experience with my Russian counterpart, the four years I was chairman, was uh, we, we would routinely and quickly talk about terrorism and how to handle that. Uh, he's clearly, uh, Russia's got huge infrastructure challenges, huge demographic challenges, et cetera. And all those are, I think, areas that we could figure out a way possibly to to uh, work together. Um, he's going to play geopolitically. He's playing in Syria. He's going to play, uh, I think, in the Middle East with Iran. The, whole, the, the uh, re fairly recent, maybe a couple months ago now, when he launched uh, a strike into Syria out of a Russian base was a huge issue as far as I was concerned, um, because that's the first time Iran has allowed anybody to do anything like that. Um, and he's going to play politically. So. Uh, I think, and, and clearly with the reversal of his approach, the pressure he now puts on, re-puts, I guess, or on the continent in, uh, uh, in Europe, um, and uh, the change the, that is ongoing, uh, the, the wave that, is, that has uh, come from the Syrian uh, uh, engagement, the Syrian crisis, the refugee crisis, and the political changes that are, that are that reaching globally, but certainly have reached very, very quickly uh, deep into Europe all the way over to the UK. Um, so I, I worry a great deal about that. We, we uh, should all worry about cyber. 
uh, a lot more, I think, than we actually do. And part of that is, do we really understand it? Do we understand the technical aspects of cyber? Because I think leaders have to understand that a whole lot better than we do in order to really make the right decisions as far as uh, our own technological investment, our people investment, our policy investment. And Russia is exceptionally good at it. There are a few countries in the world that are really good at it, and Russia is at the top of the list. Do you list. think that they influenced the election? I'm not sure they. I'm not sure they. Oh, did you think they tried to influence the election? Yeah. Yes, I do. I, I think, and, and I'm not briefed, so I'm, I say this from the perspective of having worked obviously inside government for a significant period of time, having spent a lot of time on cyber, and as I read what this administration has said about what's going on, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that it was the Russians and that they clearly were trying to influence uh, uh, outcomes uh, in our own elections. And do you worry then about the relationship that uh, General Mike Flynn and others have with Russia? Well, I'm not, other than what's been stated publicly, uh, I, I'm not intimately familiar with his relationship. I certainly, the, the trip to Russia uh, where he's sitting next to President Putin, uh, and his comments about uh, the Russian media tied to that uh, raise questions with respect from my perspective. Um, uh, and, uh, and I think that's obviously something that will unfold pretty quickly. Um, uh, back to uh, is there a way to have a strategic relationship with Russia uh, that makes a difference uh, and uh, ensure that in, in that relationship are national security interests uh, are protected. Uh, so I, you know, I am concerned about it in terms of what I've seen over the last many months. And um, we'll, just, we'll just have to see how it plays out as he takes the, the national security advisor job. You know him as a two-star. Why don't you walk us through that uh, process? So he was, uh, he was my intel officer as a two-star in the joint staff. Actually, I, th I think he came up, uh, he'd been a one-star uh, on one of the commands down in Florida. Uh, highly regarded intel officer in the Army over a long period of time. Uh, worked very closely with Stan McChrystal, uh, and I think he and Stan, and Stan led this, but fundamentally turned the ground operation around uh, in, uh, in, in Iraq uh, when we were very early in the war behind what I call in the speed of war, and it was really Stan and the intelligence piece which allowed us to start turning the intelligence information much more rapidly. And, and uh, Mike Flynn was a, he's, he's an out of the box, I guess I'd describe him this way, he's, he's both an out of the box thinker and he's an in the box thinker. He doesn't exist in one place or another. Uh, so, so he had some pretty capable, different views on how to do this. Uh, and he really turned, he really, he and McChrystal created, and others, created this killing machine which really got at the terrorists, uh, specifically al-Qaeda uh, in Iraq. He, I watched him do the same kind of thing uh, in Afghanistan after he worked for me. So came to the Joint Staff, was I think my intel officer for 12 or 15 months, and then he went back to theater when McChrystal went in to take over Afghanistan. Very creative guy, um, uh, and from what, all, uh, from what I saw, uh, took, took good care of people, treated people well, Never had any inkling of uh, of not doing that when he was uh, when he was my intel officer. Um, when you move from a two star to a three star, you're supposed to have much more of a strategic view. Does he have the same strategic view? Well, I think actually the way I describe it is that at the three star level, you're probably uh, I'd, I'd want you to have more of an operational view, uh, and it's going to it's really going from three to four mm -hmm. that uh, that strategic view becomes absolutely critical. Uh, and clearly, as a national security advisor, that's where you need to spend uh, the vast majority, if not all your time. Uh, and, and from my perspective, in a balanced way, I think uh, the challenges uh, that, that uh, this new administration will see will come from every direction. And the national security advisor is the quote-unquote honest broker uh, in, inside the national security system. And I, uh, I you know, I'm hopeful that that Mike will be able to tee that, you know, tee the issues up for the president, uh, the president, president-elect, and, and soon to be President Trump. Uh, and I just, I know that business pretty well. They will come in droves, uh, and they will be the issues will be relentless. And so, uh, there's nobody that's probably more critical in that regard 
than, uh, than Mike Flynn. Um, uh, it's been reported that a year or two ago, you and maybe um, General McChrystal, um, you know, talked to Mike Rogers after he had become sort of a cable TV uh, personality and said, you're getting a little um, ahead of what a military officer should be doing in terms of being partisan and somewhat provocative. Is that right? You, uh, you, you mean, I think you mean Mike Flynn. Uh, yeah, Mike Flynn. Right. No, I'm sorry, General McChrystal, I thought no, I, also. No, you just said Mike they, Rogers. That's, oh, I'm sorry. There are a lot of, yeah, Mike's, Mike Flynn, there are a lot of Mike Rogers. We'll get to Mike Rogers yeah. in a minute. Sorry. <laughs> yes. There are, yeah, there's more than one Mike Rogers. We get to all the Mike Rogers yeah. as soon uh, as we can. <laughs> So this, uh, maybe I'll, I'll answer that from the perspective of uh, what I was pretty public about in terms of both General Allen speaking at the Democratic Convention and uh, General Flynn speaking at the Republican Convention. And I have felt strongly about this for a long time, and it has to do with the apolitical uh, point of view of the United States military. And uh, I worry a great deal about uh, uh, individuals who are retired who speak strongly uh, against uh, current policy, if you will. And I saw this start in, in uh, a great level of intensity during the Iraq War, um, and uh, in many ways it, it continued. And I, I think that actually uh, uh, hits very strongly at this issue of being apolitical, and I think too many times when you see in, uh, retired military individuals uh, at any pay grade, much less a very senior pay grade, uh, take a very strong political stance. Uh, that sends the wrong message to America. It sends the wrong message back inside our military because it teaches our young ones that it's okay and it's not okay. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a fundamental, from my perspective, a fundamental principle of the United States of America, of the, of the democracy that we have, that the military's got to stay apolitical. And when both Allen and Flynn and others, but certainly when they spoke at the convention. Do you think there was an equivalence? In terms of it? In, Allen and Flynn. Ab yeah, absolutely. In, in terms of, and, and there is, in my experience is with both political parties, they see how many admirals and generals they can get to sign up mm -hmm. and somehow they think that makes a difference. And I'm not sure, I've never seen any, any uh, analytic proof that having a list of generals and admirals uh, on your side, it makes any difference whatsoever. Although it's a little bit better than apparently Hollywood celebrities, which we now have a data point about, which it doesn't work. That wasn't a question, was it? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you about your view of Hollywood celebrities. But uh, having shifted by mistake to uh, uh, Admiral Mike Rogers, uh, let me go there, which is, um, it was reported that he had had a meeting with Mike Flynn, who I think is an old friend of his. I mean, they were colleagues throughout the military, and that he hadn't informed uh, the Obama administration or Secretary Carter. Uh, do you do you know what happened there? I think I think it was actually it's been pretty widely reported he met with President-elect Trump. Right. Uh, I mean, through but that Mike yeah, Flynn and, helped and Mike, broker it. Yeah. Mike Rogers and Mike Flynn uh, have. Uh, a relationship tied to the professional side of their lives, not throughout their lives. In fact, Mike Rogers, Admiral Mike Rogers, came in to relieve uh, um, General Flynn when when Flynn went back to Afghanistan, and and Mike Rogers, uh, Admiral Mike Rogers, became my intelligence officer on the Joint Staff as well. Exceptional officer, exceptionally uh, talented individual that was very highly thought of. Uh, and, and uniquely qualified in some ways, because he's a cryptologist, not, not a straight stick intel uh, officer, and Mike's perspective, Mike Rogers' perspective on both those things, particularly with uh, uh, both intel and cryptology, but having that, that cryptological expertise is hugely critical in a world right now that we're living with the cyber threat that we have. Um, uh, I don't, I, I'm not gonna go into, Certainly, I don't know all the details with respect to the meeting. Um, um, the, the, I thought it sort of summed up well when President Obama was asked this question, uh, asked about this, I think, yesterday in Peru, and, and he said that, that Admiral Mike Rogers was a great patriot, you know, and, and an incredibly capable individual in his job, and I just soon uh, leave it at that. 
the, the only caveat I'd make is that we are, you know, we're sort of in this, the the seas the sees every bit of information mode right now in transition. There's so many unknowns. Um, uh, and having, I, having been, I went through this time with the, the Obama administration, there's so much uncertainty, there's so much newness. Uh, we're really at a time where probably the best indicators of what a new administration is going to do is the only thing we can, we can say at this point is based on who they pick. Uh, and because the next step is they're going to have to get in the job, uh, and then actually start executing. Um, uh, and, uh, and there is a reality, I watched this with the Obama administration, uh, there, there's a reality that hits you after you get off the campaign. Uh, the world is, is, has got some huge challenges. There are very real things that have to be addressed. There are constraints uh, that are out there, and that's the, that's the reality of what any new administration uh, is gonna, has seen and certainly what this administration is going through right now. So I try not to overreact to, uh, to every, uh, you know, every hot story that gets put out there. I'd like, I think we as a country need to, to uh, catch our breath, to take a breath, sit back, let the newly elected, democratically elected President of the United States pick his people and then start, I think, judging, if you will, once he's in and starts to execute against what he said he'd do. You're listening to a roundtable discussion with retired Admiral Mike Mullen. He served as a top military advisor to Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama. He held the role Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff from 2007 to 2011. Today, he's fielding questions from national security experts, journalists, students, and Aspen Institute CEO Walter Isaacson. The discussion centers around national security priorities for the incoming Trump administration. Now back to the conversation. The stories about Admiral Rogers in the past few days were obviously leaked somewhere. Do you think that stems from a push to separate Cyber Command from the NSA? Is that a proper approach to go? Or do you think that there's some problem that people in the administration are having with Admiral Rogers? Um, I, I honestly don't, I mean, I honestly don't know this issue of uh, a separate Cyber Command uh, from the head of the NSA has been out there for a while. Uh, we actually stood Cyber Command up under my watch. Uh, I was, I was Concerned, Keith Alexander, General Keith Alexander, was the uh, head of the NSA and that, and was dual-hatted as is Rogers right now, as the head of Cyber Command. Uh, I always felt at some point they were going to come up that, that they needed we needed to have two separate four stars running those commands because each mission in and of itself is a hugely difficult, complex mission. Uh, and as we did all this, and I watched this with Alexander as we stood all this up inside. Uh, stood Cyber Command up uh, as Keith was trying to manage both jobs. Uh, I, I just I thought I believe then and I believe now that at some point we were going to have to separate the two. And I and I would say as cyber has become much more uh, uh, difficult, much more complex. Uh, I'm still very much uh, in that camp. Where the Obama administration is on this. I'm not actually sure. I, I honestly just don't know. Do you worry a little bit about the militarization that seems to be happening in, in our discussion now of a transition? I well, I in, I broadly worry about the militarization of the government, if you will. That's not our country, quite frankly. Um, I have uh, the, the the other aspect of my own experience is there are very few to no, almost none, but very few senior military officers that understand politics. President company excluded. No, no. It is, no, I mean, I learned a lot in four years. There's no great training ground for this in any job that you have. There's no great training job to be chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. What's, what's your training? Whatever you've been doing up to that point. Hard jobs, and then you figure it out. And you are generally speaking inside that white house you're the you know you're the lone person standing as a member of the military and everybody else is doing politics 24 7 365 it's what they do i understand that it's how they got there they want to stay there and that's how they start looking immediately so 
Uh, as you look at, uh, as we look at former military officers who've been in senior positions, uh, and you look at some of the challenges that they've faced in previous administrations as well as the current administration, I worry more, I, I worry about not having that background as in terms of trying to figure out how do you, how do you address the issues that uh, are coming up every single day. And the White House, at least I've watched this over the course of two administrations, seemingly um, uses that political lens longer and longer and longer on every single issue. And, and the point, getting to the point where you let go of the politics and do what's substantively right is harder and harder to do. So, so you know, broadly, it's not just uh, how many military people or former military people do you want to put on your staff in principal positions? But I do worry about I do worry about the at that aspect of can former senior military officers handle the politics of the environment that they're going into? And I don't care what any of them say, they don't know what they're getting into. On balance, then to follow up on that. Um, uh, on balance, would you prefer not to have a senior military officer as Secretary of Defense? It's on, you're saying on balance? On balance. Um, I need, I, I would want to have somebody that, uh, as Secretary of Defense, that actually has the skill set. I mean, literally, uh, there are a lot of critical jobs in the new administration, but somebody that has the breadth, the depth, the strategic reach, the global connections, if you will, and understanding to handle that job. And that's not to say that there's not a military officer around that couldn't handle that. It's just I think that <clears throat> working in this town, uh, in what drives this town, uh, if you don't have that background or that capability, it's going to make that job much more difficult. But isn't there a larger philosophical question? about whether a civilian should leave the military? Well, I mean, I think there is at the same time. Uh, um, you know, we've elected President Trump, uh, and, uh, and, and if he wants to, and, and he gets the, I think, rightfully so, gets the freedom to pick who he wants, uh, and then to really lead the team to make it work. And I would let me start with that said, what would you prefer? Um, why didn't you ask me this like three months ago? <laughs> I did. Um, I, I think I'd just like to leave it where it is, Walt. Uh, that's my cue to let other people try. But as we're waiting to put up your cards and do it, will you tell me what ship um, you and um, Judge Webster both served on? We were actually. I mean, we, we, we served on the same class of ship. Yeah, that's what I meant. Uh, uh, AO, the, they were AOGs built in World War II. Uh, auxiliary gasoline tanker by the time I got to it. I think Judge Webster served in Vietnam uh, off the coast there. I served I served a few years later on the same kind of ship. Admiral Guy Swan Hi, from Guy. Uh, the Association of the U.S. Army. Uh, first of all, on a personal note, I totally agree with your views on uh, military officers in the campaign process. I know General Dempsey echoed yeah. much of that as well during the campaign, and I, I'm old school on that as well. Uh, right now, the transition is focused on people and getting people into position. How soon does the new administration need to uh, determine a national security strategy, get something out there that people can be reassured about or take issue with? How soon does that process need to occur? Um, I think uh, actually above a national security strategy, I'd like just a strategy for the country. Uh, and I say that not totally tongue-in-cheek. That's an easy thing to say. That's tough to do. Um, as I've looked about uh, over the last many years, the idea of uh, secu the, sort of this combination of security and prosperity, is there a way to, is there a way to anchor yourself strategically, strategically on those two pillars and move forward. And I, I believe, and I think this election was a lot about this uh, as well, that, that uh, you, can, you drive an awful lot of things in the right direction if you get the economy right, if you get the jobs people, if, if people actually see themselves as having a future. Um, so, and then inside that, 
please. I mean, if I have a national, if I have a national strategy, then I can figure out as a senior military officer, wh where's how does the military fit into this? Lacking that, these are very capable people, and they'll make it up on their own. If I don't have that guidance, I'll do what I think is right, and I'll create my own kind of strategy and move forward. I just think from a coherent standpoint, having something like that as quickly as possible. That said, uh, and the world isn't going to wait for this, but it, it's going to take a few months for any new administration to get their feet on the ground and get their feet under them. And, uh, and at the same time, I worry a great deal about there will be world events which will impose on them immediately. So hopefully they can be thinking through some of this uh, in the transition, if you will. Uh, because I think they're going to be, those challenges are going to, are, are going to be out there on day one. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Retired Admiral Mike Mullen is today's featured speaker. He talked about national security priorities for President-elect Trump at the Washington Ideas Roundtable Series on Monday, November 21st. Uh, Donald Trump uh, frequently deeply criticized the Iran nuclear deal. I, I, would, I, I have a two-part question. A, uh, should we tear up that agreement as he has uh, consistently threatened to do? To to do, and uh, B, if we were to do that, what would be, in your judgment, the, the consequences of walking away from that agreement? So I'm, I, I came out in favor of the deal, and uh, that's where I remain today, and I think tearing the deal up uh, would be a mistake. Uh, I came at that from a position, certainly in the, in the last decade of my leadership in uniform, uh, the worry, the, the, the great worry for me was, uh, are we on the verge of starting another war in the Middle East? And I'm in two plus a very significant challenge with respect to terrorism. Uh, and I didn't think the margin, I didn't think the margin for error there was, in terms of choices, uh, was very significant. Uh, what, what, I'm sorry, was, was very big. So I would just, I would urge the new administration to look at it very carefully. I got the campaign rhetoric and I got to understand, I understand uh, uh, where, that, where that is coming from, but looking at the details of the deal, looking at how much uranium has, Iran has gotten rid of. Uh, I was taken back when I was, and this is you know, 2007 to 11, I was taken uh, at how resilient Iran seemed to be in terms of building capability. Um, I was taken with how short the breakout period was when the deal was made. Um, and from my perspective, we've had enough wars in the Middle East, and, and we need to figure out a, a way to avoid another one. I worry a great deal about uh, nuclear. If, if Iran gets a nuclear weapon, uh, the, the whole issue of proliferation in that part of the world, as that world, part of the world continues to be very unstable, uh, and I actually went through to get to, to conclude what I did, uh, uh, I went through a pretty significant due diligence period to try to understand the details of the deal. Uh, and I just think it's the best hope that Iran doesn't develop that capability and that it doesn't then get into a nuclear buildup in the Middle East, which I think would be a disaster. Uh, I think they need to be... Uh, uh, directly and intensely crushed on their state-sponsored terrorism stuff. I think they need to be addressed in terms of their military capability, developments of those things which were at that time outside the deal. Um, uh, and I guess my one question is if we tear the deal up, then what? And I haven't, actually I haven't been able to answer that question. Well, General Flynn said the answer was the only answer was regime change. How good are we at regime change over the years? We're O for a lot <laughs> with respect to regime, regime change. Um, and uh, in fact, and, and maybe it's just because I'm a product of this town, I, I, I don't even, I'm not even sure how to say that. I don't even like to use that phrase anymore because it's been so 
politicized over time, uh, and we haven't done well. I mean, just in my time recently, starting with Iraq, uh, and, and however the regimes changed, none of them have worked out very well. So it was a mistake to ask for regime change in Syria? Um, I believe for some time that uh, um, that the, the main focus in, in Syria needed to be uh, ISIS. Um, I'm, I guess, more than a little disappointed that the political leaders uh, globally and in the region haven't figured out a way to one stop the killing and send the refugees home. I mean, we're at a, depending on who you, what number you believe, and we're at a half a million people who've died. We're at several million who have uh, uh, left their, obviously, their homeland, the vast majority of whom want to go home. Uh, that crisis has changed the political landscape in Europe. You might argue that it's changed, it's been part of changing the political landscape here. Uh, at a time where we have a resurgent Russia, uh, and so two years ago, predicting where we'd be right now with respect to Europe uh, and, and what may happen in NATO, et cetera, et cetera, I don't think anybody was, was uh, very prescient with respect to that. But it's an extremely dangerous situation. Um, and so I generally believe that people who live in a country have to figure out and it's, uh, you know, who their leaders are going to be and it's better left up to them than forced from the outside. Proliferation uh, is a subject and what advice would you have near term for a new Trump administration and Mike Flynn, whom we all know, uh, to deal with Northeast Asia and stability there, including Kim Jong-un? Well, I worry, I, I've, and this has been years for, for me as well, I just, I worry that there's no place in the world that could blow up more quickly than that peninsula. You've got a 31-year-old leader who's got a, a lethal family history uh, and legacy to uphold. Uh, he has nuclear weapons um, uh, and, uh, and, and um, has, I think, a couple of the statistics that, that uh, really got my attention, has, has killed more people in a regime in the first five years than his dad did in 18, has tested more uh, missiles uh, in the first five years than his dad did. And I, and it's still, I mean, while we know a little bit more about North Korea than we used to, it's still pretty much of a black hole. And so I sort of take that data and say, it, you know, it's all going in the wrong direction here. Um, I don't know, uh, I'm, this, my view is, this cannot get solved unless Beijing leads the solution set. They've pushed back on that for a long time. They've, I'm sure they've got challenges with North Korea historically. They've certainly got challenges with this leader. But if we don't, if, if they don't reach out uh, and start to solve this, uh, then it can't go in a good direction. And, and I have, you know, my line in the sand is I think uh, get it, this young guy getting to a point where he can put a nuclear weapon on top of an ICBM is not acceptable. So he needs to be stopped before that happens. Um, and th that runs the full gamut. Can you, can you do it diplomatically, politically, financially, economically, militarily? And I, I think this is a threat that's been growing for you know, several decades. Uh, there's no indication it's going in the right direction. And I think it's something that, if passed as prologue, a new administration is going to will face a challenge on this peninsula very rapidly. I would commend a the Washington Post op-ed that you did with Sam Nunn. People can Google it. It was in September, I think, uh, Evelyn. And then, yeah. Um, I want to uh, bore down a little bit more on Syria. So, leaving aside who is in office, um, I'd like your thoughts on what we could do to address the humanitarian crisis. As we know, it's three-pronged. There's the fight against the terrorists, there's the civil war, and then there's the um, humanitarian crisis. And um, whether the, the, the immediate situation in Aleppo involves almost a quarter of a million people. Um, so again, leaving aside who the president is, you could be addressing this to the current one or the future one. Um, what, what would you recommend we do on the humanitarian front? And then also just one quick thing on regime change. It may not happen right away, because we did get rid of Milosevic, it just wasn't right away in the military operation. Uh, I, I mean, back to 
certainly what I learned is there's there's not going to be any sustained solution here without a political solution. Um, in the in the meantime, if you will, to to uh, get to um, some level of uh, Control so the refugees stop coming out and we stop killing the innocent people. The, to me, that uh, most directly is going to be us and Russia immediately. And, and you know, lacking that, uh, you then start to, then solutions start to uh, line up on the military side, certainly for us and maybe some of our allies, but certainly for us. Uh, and then that obviously we get pretty quickly into you know us and Russia and how we're going to do this together or deconflict. Uh, to me, the fact that the Russians continue to bomb the hospitals, the story in the last day or two that there are no hospitals uh, that haven't been bombed, uh, um, and women and children and obviously those who, patients who have been killed. That's back to what I said earlier, that's Putin from my perspective. I mean, that's the individual that we're dealing with here, uh, even though he may have a practical side. Um, the, the, uh, so I, I'm, I'm very leery of saying, well, gee, we should take direct military action to stop this. Uh, Syria's a great example. It happened in Libya. It happened in Iraq. It happens in Afghanistan. Who's on whose side? I mean, one of the lessons that we've learned in these wars for the last 15 plus years is that uh, there are many people who survive in that part of the world because they do play both sides and that's just part of their that that's part of their DNA so sorting out who's who in the zoo and who do you support to do these kinds of things is a is an extraordinarily complex difficult task um, I think it has to be I think it's got to come from uh, a, a bunch of political leaders that says we're gonna we're gonna stop this thing one way or another um, uh, what I mean, one suggestion would be uh, is the is stop focusing on us. From my perspective, stop focusing on Assad uh, per se. I don't think Assad's got much of a future in Syria. Whatever's left of Syria that he's going to run uh, is is a shadow of its former self. Um, uh, focus on uh, ISIS uh, uh, and. And, and see if there's a way to start to stabilize part of the countries. Part, one of the ideas that's out there all the time is a no-fly zone. That's an extraordinarily difficult thing to both put in place and then execute. And I'm not saying that at this point uh, that may not be a you know that may be a good idea to get started on stabilizing it. There's an uh, analogous to what I just said in North Korea. The longer we wait, the harder it gets. We've waited a long time and and we can look back and say, gee, I wish we'd done this three years ago or four years ago. It would have been hard, but a lot easier. If we, if we wait another four years, it's going to be exponentially more difficult and complex. Yeah, Sherry. Thank you, Admiral Mullen, for your uh, leadership over many years. You worked hard to um, sort of expand our focus on security to address all elements of, of national power. Recently, the National Intelligence Council has characterized climate change as a strategically significant risk to the United States and uh, you know in the last eight years there's been a lot of leadership both globally and domestically on that. Are you concerned uh, that in a, in a Trump administration if we back away from our commitments at Paris and elsewhere that that is going to jeopardize our ability to project forces and put our forces greater at risk uh, in operating under uh, climate risk conditions globally. I, I haven't. I haven't. Uh, it's, that's not one of those phrases in this town that that uh, I've tried to avoid uh, in terms of because, like so many things, as soon as you say it uh, and you either support it or you don't, you're instantly, you know, on one end of the spectrum or the other. I can tell you, as a leader in the military, um, both when I was the head of the Navy in 2005 and 6, and, uh, and I, 2005 to 2007, as well as chairman, the United States military had to respond to uh, to uh, events and disasters all over the world, seemingly at a much greater pace. And so, and I'm not a scientist on this. Uh, um, 
I clearly believe there's something going on here that we need to figure that out. In fact, the, one of the guys that put me on to this very early was Thad Allen, who was a head of the good friend of mine, head of the Coast Guard, sitting in the tank one day talking about the number of species that were migrating from the Pacific Coast, literally, and I'm from that part of the country, uh, up north and not returning uh, just because the temperature down there is the food's up there and the temperature's uh, uh, rising specifically. Uh, what I would hope a new administration would do would be to uh, really try to understand this from the perspective of what's happening in the world and look at the facts uh, that are out there and then from there derive policies. I'll get out of the, I, I'm actually uh, someone that believes in the Paris Accord per se because I think it brings a lot of people from a lot of countries and leaders all over the world to focus on this. Uh, I think it's, it's probably, and then how that translates to military conflict or military capabilities, et cetera, you know, I just, I haven't worked my way through that per se. Um, um, so I'd, I, I would hope they wouldn't throw it out on day one, take a good look at it and figure out how they're going to approach it. Retired Admiral Mike Mullen is today's featured speaker. National security experts, journalists, students, and Aspen Institute staff are asking questions about the national security challenges Trump's new administration will face. If you like today's show, check out the episode, The Russian Bear on the Prowl, featuring Heather Conley of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, speaking with Alyssa Slotkin. She's a senior official with the U.S. Department of Defense. To find it, search Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes. Now, back to the show. Congressman Roman. Yeah, thank you, Walter, for your great leadership here at Aspen. And, and uh, Admiral, great to see you again. Really appreciate your many trips to Delhi uh, while I was there to deepen that relationship on a military and intelligence and counterterrorism uh, level. Uh, I have a twofold question for you. Uh, going into this election, it could be argued that one of the legacy issues for the Obama administration would be this pivot or rebalance to Asia from a military and economic and a diplomatic perspective, and India certainly being one of the linchpins in that new relationship. What would be your advice to the Trump administration to continue this? And in the meantime, the second part of the question would be, as the Trump administration takes time to put their people in place, to uh, execute on a strategic uh, uh, you know, relationship around the world with these different countries, how do you assure that China does not move into a vacuum in the South China Sea and cyber and other areas? Uh, I, I believe the focus on that part of the world in the 21st century is absolutely vital. I think, I've, I've felt for some time and I continue to believe that, that the most, the most important bilateral relationship in the 21st century is that between the United States and China. And that's underpinned more than anything else just by the size and the dependence of each other, the size of the economies and the dependence that we have uh, on each other in that regard. And in addition, four of the five largest economies in the world are in Asia Pacific. Um, so stability there, uh, thriving economies in that part of the world will have a huge impact on the rest of the world. Uh, I worry a great deal about uh, the, the rise of China. Um, I have seen recently uh, at, at a classified level the, the enormous military capability they have built um, over the last 15 years, which uh, was not, uh, I wasn't unfamiliar with. I just, uh, I guess I was taken by the breadth of it uh, and the speed with which they're doing it. Uh, and it's delivered. This isn't, this isn't going to be stuff. This is stuff that they've got right now. I worry about the current Chinese leadership being tougher and tougher and tougher, more stringent, more, stri I'm sorry, more strident, 
Um, what they have done in the South China Sea, first of all, to the environment is deplorable. That doesn't get much play in this international court hearing, but they destroyed the environment where they were building these capabilities, destroyed it. Uh, in addition to strategically, what does it mean long term with respect to building out a military capability in that part of the world? Uh, I think the, the, way, the way this gets resolved peacefully is I think the two leaders have to get together, have to have a relationship, um, and we have to be very strong. China, my view, China would have our milita military capability leave the region. Uh, I think it was best said, and I, I'm not exact, exactly sure who said it, what Chinese leader said it, but it was you know, something along the lines of the Pacific's a big ocean. You take the east, we'll take the west. That's not going to happen because we're going to be there. We have alliances. We have uh, vital national interests in terms of stability. Um, um, that, that we are, that we need to support. So I'm, I didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't overjoyed with the word pivot because my friends in Europe and the Middle East said, what about us? Um, that said, I think the focus needs to be there. The other thing I'd encourage the new administration to look at is what's actually happened with respect to the pivot. I get the strategic thrust, but in fact, what's happened in execution so that they can understand where to pick this up and how much, uh, how much more they need to, or how much they should pursue it. And the last thing I'd say, and this is, uh, I, I understand where we are and why we're there, but I, I was a huge supporter of TPP, hugely important number of countries involved in that with trading relationships. Uh, I would hope that out of all this, we can develop relationships, uh, even, there, even if it's many bilateral relationships uh, that benefit us all. Given the, given the input side of this, which is we have shipped a lot of jobs out of this country, we do need to put our citizens back to work. We do need jobs that will provide futures uh, with respect to that. And I'm on, as Walt said, I'm on General Motors and it's a question I ask as we look at the size of our workforce. We've got to figure out, we haven't done that well as a country and we're going to have to figure that out as well. What you see on the trade thing right away post this election is, uh, is China leaning in in its, uh, in its very nascent uh, trade structure itself, I think it's called RCEP, and saying, come join me. And I think giving China that kind of leverage is a disaster for the long run. Shifting gears back towards Russia and East Asia, how do you think the upcoming administration's attitude towards them changes the threat of nuclear war? Um, I've worried, uh, it's a great question, I've worried for some time, back to Mr. Putin, who's who is very popular, uh, but he's resource constrained to a fairly well. He's invested in his strategic forces, basically, not exclusively, cer certainly invested in the cyber side, uh, but with his demographic challenges, his economic challenges, his infrastructure challenges, that he's just more and more pressed. And he has spoken, um, as did one of his ambassadors, I think it was his ambassador to Denmark, they have both spoken about nuclear weapons. They may have been tactical, but I worry that in this world uh, that uh, he's very engaged in, and he's at least, uh, and sometimes this is, this is Western logic, doesn't necessarily translate where he lives, he's got few options, and that if he, if he is, if he's cornered to a fare thee well, that, he would reach for those strategic <laughs> nuclear weapons, which would be a disaster. Wow. Wow. Thinking, thinking that we sort of put those behind us, and I negotiated the last, partially negotiated the last New START treaty, um, and uh, and I think you and you asked specifically about China with respect to that. I think China has been, from the nuclear weapon standpoint, uh, pretty quiet. Uh, their policy fits their view of the world right now. So I'd worry much more about uh, Russia in that regard. You, know, you mentioned at the beginning uh, Russian involvement, intervention in the elections here. Obviously there has been election, uh, there has been uh, intervention meddling in European elections uh, as well. 
Russia clearly sees this as an arena for what they see as hybrid warfare. Uh, how should the democracies respond? Uh, should they see it as a form of warfare as well? I, and I'm a warfighter, so I almost have no place else to go. Um, I don't know how to approach this without thinking about it in terms of war fighting. Um, I, and I have watched in cyber defense, um, uh, exploitation and offense merge, and it's a space that happens so fast, obviously at the speed of light, but sometimes it's difficult to uh, to uh, pull those apart. I, I don't know how to get somebody's attention uh, without them paying a price for what they're doing. And so uh, that's not a unique or new thought, particularly in terms of war fighting. Uh, I do think, I mean, my own experience is the Russians actually respond to strength pretty well. Uh, and so how can you create an environment, uh, and maybe it's a warning environment, and then an execution environment that says we can't tolerate this anymore and that they start paying a pretty significant price. Ellen Frost, East-West Center at National Defense University. You asked, um, you raised the question of Russia, and I'd like to link it with the Asia-Pacific. There's a strong sign that Russia is becoming more diplomatically and, and otherwise engaged in the Asia-Pacific and has ambitions there. I've heard senior Asians argue that this is actually a good thing, that it provides yet another balancing element. It certainly has implications for Japan, which we haven't talked about at all yet and the Northern Territories issue. So I wondered if you could comment a bit on, on that subject. Maybe I'll just pick up a little bit about worries if, you know, uh, that President Putin is out of, running out of options or running out of maneuver space. One of the longer term um, things I worry about is, uh, is if we completely neglect him and our relationship just continues to go south, that he will become much more closely aligned with China than is natural. I mean, there is there there is going to be certainly some of that natural alignment, but that where you don't have a lot of places to go, that this pushes them uh, and and China and Russia together for the next 50 years geostrategically will make it much more challenging for us and I think the rest of the world. That said, I think Russia's involvement in that part of the world, and I've pulsed that when I've been out there in the last several years, and I haven't gotten a lot of traction. How, how engaged are the Russians? What's their Navy doing? Are they active here? And it's, I, I, I get basically, I don't get answers anywhere close to what they were back in the day, if you will, in that regard. Uh, but I think geostrategically and geopolitically, and they do certainly have interest in that part of the world, that uh, to have them engaged is probably better than it is, than to not have them engaged uh, specifically. Well, thank you so much for answering all of our questions. Mike Mullen is a retired admiral who advised Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama. He served as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff from 2007 to 2011. In today's episode, he spoke with various national security experts, journalists, and students, as well as Aspen Institute President Walter Isaacson. Their discussion was part of the Aspen Institute's Washington Ideas Roundtable series and was held November 21, 2016. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Follow the Aspen Institute on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Institute. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of our public programs. Thanks for joining me.